One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest on this week's episode is Dr. Andrew Weil, the physician and world-renowned leader and pioneer in the world of integrative medicine. I have been wanting to speak to Dr. Weil for a long time because health and wellness are topics that are currently rife with a lot of misinformation and quite a lot of pseudoscience. And I say this as somebody who is regularly confused by some of the claims that I see and read, but thank goodness I have learned friends who I then invite on the podcast who can tell us the real story. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know I'm not a huge fan of putting my health, mental or physical, in the hands of a crystal healer. I might jokingly say, show me the data that proves there's a positive physical effect, and I do stand by that. But that's not to say that evidence-based medicine and alternative therapies can't complement each other. And then, of course, there's the placebo effect, but more on that later. Dr. Weil is, as I mentioned, the leader and pioneer of integrative medicine. And this quote from him, for me, sums up why I knew he would make such a valuable, helpful and insightful guest for you, my most excellent listeners. He describes integrative medicine thus. The intelligent combination of conventional medicine and natural and preventative medicine as useful alternative therapies. In a broader description, he explains it as a system that emphasizes the natural healing power of the organism that looks as people not just as physical bodies, but also as mental, emotional beings, spiritual entities, community members, aka whole person medicine, that places a great deal of emphasis on lifestyle and all of the lifestyle factors that influence health and illness, and that really values the patient-practitioner relationship and makes use of all available therapies that show reasonable evidence of efficacy and aren't going to cause harm. That last part's the real clincher for me, makes use of all available therapies that show reasonable evidence of efficacy and aren't going to cause harm. A little bit of background about Dr. Weil, who I first heard about uh, in, in my career as a beauty journalist when Origins launched their mega mushroom skincare range, which he is very much involved in. Uh, Dr. Weil received a degree in biology and botany from Harvard College and an MD from Harvard Medical School. After a medical internship at Mount Sinai Hospital in San Francisco, he worked for a year with the National Institute of Mental Health and then wrote his first book, The Natural Mind. Just to say, his first of 15 books currently in print. He was a fellow of the Institute of Current World Affairs and travelled to places including South America and Africa to research medicinal drug use, medicinal plants and alternative methods of treating disease. He was also part of the research staff of the Harvard Botanical Museum and conducted various investigations into medicinal and psychoactive plants, which is obviously a really hot topic right now 
Um, I can't move at the moment for hearing people talking about mushrooms in uh, regard to mental health, but we'll get onto that in the episode. He is also the founder and director of the University of Arizona's Center for Medicine. Now, I mentioned his books. After The Natural Mind, he went on to write uh, books including Mind Over Meds, Know When Drugs Are Necessary, When Alternatives Are Better, and When to Let Your Body Heal on Its Own. The Anti-Inflammatory Diet, he was one of the first to raise concerns about long-term low-level inflammation and suggest solutions uh, for it and also healthy aging a lifelong guide to your well-being that really is just a taster but obviously all the links to Dr Wilde's books will be in the show notes in this episode we talk about why Dr Wilde believes integrative medicine is the future why the placebo effect is so fascinating and proves how powerful the mind can be we also discuss breathing and why breathing practices can elicit real health benefits the need for consistency with any health endeavor, how to avoid health trends, fads, and gimmicks. And we touch on biohacking, supplementation, the use of psychotropic and psychedelics in medicine, and much more. And we also we also talk about the power of not being angry. That's that's a clincher too. All the links to everything we discuss and to Dr. Wilde will be in the show notes. And as, as a wee bit of housekeeping, it seems the Metropolitan Police were keen to be featured on the Emma Gunn show in this episode. We were very high up in a hotel in central London, but their siren still managed to make it onto the show. And rather than clunkily try and edit it out and inter- interrupt Dr. Wilde, we just let them pass and then uh, we carried on. So, But I'm not I'm mad at them because they were just going about their business of keeping this beautiful city of London safe. So I'll, I will give them a pass. I learned a huge amount during my time with Dr. Wilde and could have talked to him for several more hours. So I really hope that you enjoy our conversation. Here he is, Dr. Andrew Weil on The Emma Gunn Show. Dr. Andrew Weil. Hello. What a pleasure to be sitting opposite you. Yes. This conversation is one I've been wanting to have for a long time. Uh-huh. And I want to uh, have this conversation with you because you really are the pioneer, one of the pioneers of integrative mm-hmm. medicine. And I guess in order to be able to move forward, into a really productive conversation for my most excellent listeners. I would love to just kind of, ex- if you wouldn't mind, explain what that really means. Yeah, integrative medicine is the medicine of the future. I'm absolutely convinced this is the direction mm-hmm. we have to go. It, uh, the basic philosophy of integrative medicine is to really to value the intrinsic healing ability of the human organism, mm-hmm. um, to look at patients as more than physical bodies. We're also mental, emotional beings, spiritual entities, community members. Those other dimensions of human life have to be taken into account. Mm-hmm. Uh, conventional medicine is very limited in restricting its view to the physical body. Mm-hmm. Uh, integrative medicine places a lot of emphasis on lifestyle. Uh, and we think we're in a very strong position to offer preventive, real preventive care by uh, giving people advice about how to eat, how to be physically active, how to handle stress, how to rest and sleep, and so forth. And we are willing to look around the world and throughout history for treatments uh, that may be useful as long as they're not going to cause harm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we take the best aspects of various forms of alternative medicine and incorporate them into with conventional medicine. Brilliant. And just to say, it is about blending the two. And I. Yeah, it's not about rejecting conventional medicine. Clearly, yes. conventional medicine does some things very right. If I were in a serious car accident, I wouldn't want to first go to a shaman or a chiropractor or an herbalist. I'd like to go to a trauma center and get put back <laughs> together, but then I might use the other methods I know as soon as I could to speed up the healing process. Yeah. But conventional medicine is, is really quite ineffective at dealing with most of the chronic diseases that are epidemic in our society today. Uh, 
uh, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, with many uh, of the mental illnesses that we deal with, mm. um, with many forms of cancer. Um, and in these areas where conventional medicine is ineffective, it often causes harm mm. and it causes great expense. So it's here where I think integrative medicine can be very useful. And in fact, to that point, you say the great promise about integrative medicine is that it can, it can lower healthcare costs and improve healthcare outcomes. Right. And uh, in the U.S., we are our healthcare system is completely collapsing. You know, the, the cost of it is insupportable. We're now mm. spending 18% of our gross domestic product on our health. That's going to go up to 20%, completely unsustainable. Mm. And at the same time, we have terrible health outcomes. You know, mm. we have uh, our longevity is not great. Infant mortality is not great. The rates of these chronic diseases is horrendous. And you have always been ahead of the curve. Yes. And you are very good and uh, at spotting these things. Spotting trends, often long before I remember mm. warning people about the dangers of trans fats, probably 20 years before people caught on to that. Before Schwarzenegger made yeah. them illegal in the yeah, state yeah. of California. For example. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so you have this real ability to sort of see what's coming, slot it yep. all together, and see a bigger picture. Yes. Um, to that point where one of the things that is now dominating conversations is the use of psychotropics. Right. But was it in the late 60s, early 70s that you did the first actual clinical Yeah, trial? I was, uh, well, I began studying uh, psych psychedelics and psychoactive drugs in the 1960s. I was a botany major at Harvard and uh, had the good fortune to be under the mentorship of a man named Richard Schultes, director of the Harvard Botanical Museum. It was one of the early explorers of hallucinogenic plants in the Amazon. Um, I did the first uh, human double-blind experiments with cannabis mm -hmm. in 1968. Uh, I was first writing about psychoactive mushrooms in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s, so mm -hmm. I have credentials that go way back yeah. in that field. Well, and also to that point, I, what I am really interested in is how you see these things develop, evolve, and whether you feel they become diluted and Yeah, well, I've always said, and this goes back many, many years, that these drugs have tremendous uh, therapeutic potential. Mm. And I think that's wasted when people just take them in party situations. Mm. Um, and uh, I am both surprised and pleased to see this great resurgence of interest in them. Mm. And now a lot of uh, research documenting their positive potentials, for instance, to treat drug-resistant depression mm -hmm. and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think clearly in the U.S. there is a trend toward legalizing these. And uh, I think in, in short time they're going to be made available for mm -hmm. therapeutic use. However, I think we need a new class of professionals who are skilled in using them mm -hmm. because the experiences people have uh, with these agents uh, are totally dependent on set and setting, on expectation and environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need people analogous to shamans in traditional society mm -hmm. to guide people. Are they the people who are coming out of your institute in Arizona? No, you know, the institute in Arizona is training, is really training physicians, uh, medical students, medical residents, allied health professionals in integrative medicine. There's tremendous interest among those people mm -hmm. in psychedelics, and so we include material in that in our curriculum, but that's not our primary purpose. Yeah. But you are, there are a lot of people coming out of that center, aren't there? And Yes, we have very intensive trainings. Uh, the, the main educational offering is a two-year fellowship mm -hmm. uh, for um, uh, those who have medical degrees, 
uh, MDs, DOs, and have completed residency training. Mm. Uh, it's mostly taught online with some residential time in Tucson, and we've graduated over 2,000 physicians from that program now. Uh, they're in, in all specialties, all ages. They're in practice in all states in the U.S. and Canada mm. in a number of other countries as well. And it's worth saying that integrative medicine is an accepted term in academic discourse. Totally. Uh, you know, there's no quibble over this anymore. Yeah. And there's uh, textbooks of integrative medicine. Uh, some years ago, Oxford University Press came to me and asked me if I would um, be the general editor for a series of volumes for clinicians in integrative medicine. So this is the Weill Integrative Medicine Library, and there are now, I think, 20-some volumes that have been published in cardiology, psychiatry, dermatology. Mm. Uh, and these are very useful uh, textbooks for for physicians. Yeah. And you have, or there have been experiences of butting heads with evidence-based. Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> that continues to go on. But I have to say, you know, I think there is a real conflict between integrative medicine and evidence-based medicine. At its, in its most extreme form, evidence-based medicine, that movement is really analogous to religious fundamentalism. It's scientific fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And it is obnoxious in its extreme forms. For example, in many medical institutions, this is true in North America, you cannot give a talk unless you submit in advance what you're going to say and have that reviewed by the evidence-based medicine committee. Oh. And you have to give references uh, to support what you say published in journals that are approved by the evidence-based medicine committee. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the thought police. <laughs> you know, that's, that is not acceptable. Mm. Uh, and also... Um, when I think, you know, this is very clear in North America today. There is a, there is a very unsavory collusion among insurance companies, medical institutions, medical journals, and pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Uh, and it's all in the name of evidence-based medicine that, force, that forces doctors to prescribe drugs and do treatments which they may not agree with, mm. but they have no freedom to say no. I'll just give you one example. Yeah, I was talking to one, one of my students, a neurologist, who said that a great problem she has today is that there's very sloppy diagnosis of age-related cognitive decline in patients you know, with very minimal testing. And once this label is put down on the medical record, she is then forced to prescribe Alzheimer's drugs that she doesn't believe in, that she thinks are worthless and dangerous, yeah. are very expensive. But this is the, her institution in which she works forces her to do this. And as I say, this is a collusion among mm -hmm. the insurers, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical journals, and it's all done in the name of, yes, evidence-based medicine. And cash money. And cash money. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's where there does the, pe the pendulum swings completely the other way. Yeah. And there is this rejection. And I think what I do find really interesting about integrative medicine is the fact that it's like, well, there are good parts of that and there are good absolutely, parts of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we, I'm certainly not uh, uncritically in favor of alternative medicine. I think mm -hmm. there are some ideas and practices in alternative medicine that are very sensible and worth incorporating and others that are silly and others that are dangerous. And I think, it, you know, that people need help in, in navigating through this world. And mm. that's what we train uh, people to do. Well, to that point, one of the reasons I've been so excited to speak to you is because I live in that space as a health and beauty journalist mm -hmm. of getting every press release about every fad, about yeah, every I can trend. Imagine, right. And I've fallen for it. Yep. Hence my position now of don't delegate your mental health yep. to a crystal, for yep. goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I can only imagine what it must be like for the consumer 
yeah. or my brilliant listeners who want a quick fix or want to feel better and I'll promise lightning in a bottle. Yeah, I think people are crazed, crazy today, you mm. know, with so much, so much information, too much information, mm. a great deal of misinformation and actual disinformation as mm. well. Just if you look in the area of diet and nutrition, there are so many dietary fads out there and mm. so many people on very restrictive diets, some of which I think make very little sense. Mm. Um, I, you know, one of the uh, areas that I've done research in is healthy aging. I have a book called Healthy Aging, and when I was researching that, I made a number of trips to Okinawa, mm -hmm. uh, which was famous for having the highest concentration of centenarians in the world. Mm -hmm. Until recently, Okinawan longevity has plummeted, mainly as a result of American fast food becoming very popular there, McDonald's especially. No, uh, no true. It's happened in a very short space of time. However, I was there last year, and I met with a group of centenarians in uh, Ogimi Village, which is famous as the Longevity Village, and sat around with these people and, uh, you know, asked them the usual question of what was the secret of their, you know, long, healthy <laughs> life. Everyone, the first words that they said were, eat everything. Now, I don't think that meant McDonald's. <laughs> but, but, you know, this, when, you, when I see people that have such restricted ways of eating right. today, I think that's foolish. But it's, but it's literally everywhere. It's everywhere. And I think the place I got to, definitely, as I'm sure many of my listeners have, is trying everything. Yeah. Achieving, yeah, yeah, yeah. achieving limited zero success and then looking back and realizing they all yeah. contradicted each other. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I often say if you like to play a game with people that <laughs> any food you name, I can give you a very rational sounding argument why you shouldn't eat it. Right. And if it was all true, there'd be nothing to eat. Yeah. And actually... Um, can we talk about your favorite breakfast? Yes. <laughs> I, I, well, actually, my favorite breakfast is a Japanese breakfast. Yeah. Um, when I grew up, um, I, I never liked breakfast. All the things that I was offered, I didn't mm. like. I didn't like milk. I didn't like cereal. I didn't like sweet pastries. I uh, didn't like eggs. And when I was 17, I went to live in Japan. I lived with Japanese families, mm. and I ate traditional Japanese breakfast, and I finally found that's what I like. It was a bowl of steamed rice and a bit of broiled fish and green yeah. tea and pickled vegetables, a little bit of tofu, uh, miso soup, and that suited me just right. Yeah. Um, also interesting, that was long ago. It was 1959, and I didn't go back to Japan for about 10, 15 years. And when I did, uh, I found not many Japanese were eating Japanese breakfast anymore. <laughs> you know, they were eating scrambled eggs and bacon and white toast and coffee. And so again, in a very short space of time, there was a dramatic change there. And in the wake of that, you could just see the Western diseases beginning to appear. Crikey. You know, for instance, uh, in the early years when I was going to Japan, you never saw a fat Japanese kid. You know, now you see a lot of fat Japanese kids. Wow, interesting. Yeah. And it's just the introduction of the Western diet. Yeah. But so, okay, someone might listen to this and think, right, well, I'm never touching eggs, I'm never touching <laughs> white toast, I'm never having breakfast again. Yeah, but, the, you know, all those things are probably fine in, in moderation. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I prefer to eat whole grain toast rather than, than yeah. you know, than white toast, but uh, there's nothing wrong with those foods. Mm. One thing I do want to talk to you about, because, uh, again, part of integrative medicine is this link between the mind, body, spirit connection. Yep. And But I do want to talk about the placebo effect yep. to really drill down into the power of the mind. So... And you have a real fascination in the fact that in every in stats of every double-blind clinical trial, there will be subjects in the placebo group 
that exhibit the same results as the test group. Yeah, so this is an assignment I often give to medical students and doctors is to go pull out a, a journal at random that reports double-blind mm. tests and flip to the end where there's a chart summarizing the results. And always in the control group, there will be one or two or a small number of subjects who show all the changes mm. produced in the experimental group. So to me, that's the most important fact that's come out of 50 years of doing yeah. randomized controlled placebo-controlled trials, that any change you can produce in the human organism with a drug can be exactly mimicked in some people some of the time by a mind-mediated mechanism. Mm. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. We should be taking advantage of that. Yes. And this is, I think, one of the great deficiencies of conventional medicine is that it really ignores the mind and discounts the possibility that the mind can affect the body. Mm. And that's the the effect of the materialistic paradigm that dominates Western medicine and mm. Western science, which says that if you observe a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Mm. You know, non-physical causation of physical events is not allowed in that paradigm. And that's why we have not made sense of placebo effects until recently when we're beginning to study them. Mm. But you know, I, the, the commonest use of the word placebo um, that I've heard over the years is in phrases like, um, we have to rule out the placebo effect or how do you know that's not just a placebo effect mm -hmm. and the most interesting word there is just yeah. <laughs> you know it's that it's that the placebo effect is a nuisance and something that we have to rule out mm -hmm. that's what we should be trying to rule in I mean mm. the placebo response is the meat of medicine that's the, a pure healing response from within elicited by the mind mm. and to me the art of medicine is obtaining the maximum healing response with the minimum physical intervention. Mm. And you've got three incredible examples of that within yourself. Yeah. Yoga, uh, cats, and um, sun. <laughs> sun. Well, those involve, uh, you know, they inv those involve well, psychedelics. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, so there was assistance there. Uh, do you want me to tell those, well, mention yeah. those stories? Or? Yes, but in the context of um, did the uh, psychedelics unlock your, your yeah, mind? Yes, so here's why, what I think is the great potential of, of psychedelics is that they can show you possibilities that mm. you would not have believed in. Mm. Uh, and the one example that I gave was, uh, this was when I was in my late 20s, I was starting to practice Hatha Yoga. Mm. And the position that I had the most difficulty with was the plow, where you lie on your back and raise your legs and try to touch your feet behind your head. Mm. Um, I got to where I could get my feet to within a foot of the floor and I had horrible pain in my neck. Mm. And I just made no progress at it. So I was on the verge of giving up. I thought, you know, well, I'm too old and stiff to do this. Mm. And one day during this time, it was in the spring, I took a dose of LSD with some friends. It was a beautiful spring day. I was outdoors. Everything was wonderful, magical. And my body felt totally elastic. And I thought, gee, well, I'm in this state. I ought to try that. So I lay on my back and was lowering my feet. I thought I had about a foot to go. And they touched the ground. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like so, so joyous. I raised them, lowered them. I was just delighted. The next day, I tried to do it. And I got my feet within a foot of the ground. And there was horrible pain in my neck. But 
now there was a difference. Mm. I had seen that it was possible. Yeah. And because of that, I was motivated to keep practicing. And in a few weeks, I was able to do it. If I had not had that experience, I think it would have given up. Mm. So to me, that's a model of what, you know, yeah. what a psychedelic drug can do, experience can do. It can show you a possibility, but it doesn't give you any information about how to maintain it. Mm. So taking psychedelics out of it for a yeah. moment and talking about the power of the mind, there's been a real shift culturally of speaking without doubt, speaking incredibly mm -hmm. positively yeah. in order to change one's results, behavior, etc. Do you believe in that as well? I do, but I think the trick is that the part of the mind that connects to the machinery of the body is not the part of the mind that we think with and formulate language with, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's what makes it hard. There's some kind of a barrier between the thinking mind, the ego mind, and the controls to the nervous system and mm -hmm. somehow you have to get around that and there are various ways of doing that mm -hmm. there's hypnosis uh you know other kinds of mind body techniques i think in for many many people project belief onto something external mm -hmm. like a physician for example mm -hmm. and that allows them to shift into this other state but but we, it's hard to just sit down and through affirmations mm -hmm. you know make these changes but yeah, but that again, it's a very trendy thing to do. Yeah, sure. To have like a thing in your house. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fine. It can't hurt. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not. And so speaking about the involuntary yeah. and speaking about kind of overriding and accessing this, the reason why I sort of smiled is because the four, seven, eight breathing yes. has an impact on that, which is something that you... Right. And this is, you know, I think that breath is a very special function uh, of of our beings it's the it is really the link between the conscious and unconscious mind mm -hmm. um between the body and the spirit uh it's uh something you can do completely consciously or completely unconsciously and i think by working with the breath you can really change the involuntary nervous system and it's so simple mm -hmm. so this four seven eight breath that i teach um it's a it's a yoga technique i learned it from an old osteopathic physician uh, I've taught it to many, many people, and I, I taught it to all patients I work with. I teach it to big groups of people. It takes no time. It takes mm -hmm. no money, no equipment. And if you practice this over time, it has remarkable physical mm -hmm. effects. And that you can, you know, the, the basic technique is to breathe in quietly through your nose to a count of four, hold your breath for a count of seven, and blow air out forcefully through your mouth to a count of eight, and you repeat this for four breath cycles or eight breath cycles later, and you do this twice a day, so it takes all of a, a minute or two. Uh, but the changes that happen with regular practice are amazing. And also, it's uh, I'm both amused and delighted that this has, has tremendous traction. If you Google, if you go on YouTube and put my name in 478, I mean, there are videos of me teaching that have millions of, mm. of views now. The uh, prime minister of Japan, whom I've never met, in a magazine interview said that I had taught him the 478 breath and it had been very helpful to him. Uh, there was a ballet company in Toronto uh, last year that put on a ballet based on the 478 breath. So this has, had, has tremendous legs. You know. Would you mind explaining, and listeners, I will put a link to Dr. Wire yeah. actually teaching this because I watched it earlier. I did it on the train on the Great. way here. Um, would you mind explaining how it allows the, the physical impact benefits Sure. The, the, the theory of breathwork is that because breathing is something you can do, it's the only function that you can do completely consciously or completely unconsciously. It's run by two different sets of nerves and muscles, voluntary nerves and muscles and involuntary nerves and muscles. So the theory is that by imposing uh, certain rhythms on the breath with your voluntary system, 
gradually you induce those rhythms in the involuntary mm -hmm. nervous system. And so if you practice this, and this is a practice, it's not something that happens in the mm -hmm. moment. It's like, you know, it's, uh, I like to say it's like water cutting the Grand Canyon. It's the regu regularity of this that eventually produces great changes. So if you practice this over time, you know, do it twice a day for f six weeks, say, uh, there are very dramatic changes, lowered heart rate, lowered blood pressure, improved digestion, improved circulation. Mm. It's the most powerful anti-anxiety measure that I've ever found. Uh, it makes the drugs that we use for anxiety states look very pathetic. What do you, uh, in, in terms of anxiety, because that's a subject yep. that I've talked about a lot on this podcast, I've struggled with it myself yep. in the past, and breathing is the only thing that can bring you off the ledge in that Moment. Right, but you have to. But to have it work for you, you have to have practiced this mm. technique, you know, so that so that it's available to you when you need it. And mm. if you at the at the start of an anxiety attack, if you do this, it nips it in the bud. Does it really? Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, what does it do? Does it just if you've done that practice, it just your body is not in a state where it can. It be is. Panic? It is impossible to be in a calm state of mind and have disordered breathing, and it's impossible to ha be in a disordered state of mind and have calm breathing. Those two things cannot coexist. Mm. So, so this gives you a a method of control that you have at your disposal. It's a fail-safe switch almost. Yeah. Um, which brings me on to consistency, yeah. because we've talked about fads, we've talked about trends and how it's easy to flip from one thing to the next. Mm -hmm. What is the, I mean, is consistency one of the most important things in integrative medicine? I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. I think, uh, you know, when I, when I work with patients uh, whose lives are out of balance, I think it's very useful to teach them to have some consistent patterns in mm -hmm. their lives, whether that's you know getting up at a consistent hour, going to sleep at a consistent hour, mm -hmm. having some sort of meditation practice, doing mm -hmm. the breathing technique regularly. Uh, I think planting these seeds of balance and consistency is very useful. With the 478 breath in particular, it is really the power that comes from the regularity of practicing mm -hmm. it. And uh, I noticed you said do it, a, do it four times. Yeah. Build four, up to eight. Yes, and twice a day minimum, mm -hmm. religiously. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, why can't I do it more than that? Well, you can do it more often if you want, but you should never do more than, absolutely never than more than eight breath cycles at one time. And, you know, the reason is it's, it's, it's hard, it's frustrating to me that there's so little research interest in breath. People don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, how could something so simple you know, do these things. It doesn't involve a drug. It doesn't involve a device. So mm -hmm. researchers don't take it seriously. But in fact, when you are manipulating the breath, you are changing brain chemistry and brain electricity. You know, it's real stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that's plenty doing it, that number of breath cycles. And there are... Um, you know, when you look at all this stuff originated in ancient India, you know, it's mm -hmm. part of this science called pranayama that's part of yoga philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's always warnings when you read about this that, you know, you shouldn't undertake any of this stuff without the guidance of a guru. Mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, the reasons to be, pay attention to that because I think you can, if you don't do this uh, cautiously, you can really cause great disturbances in the brain. <laughs> Which you wouldn't necessarily think you could. Right, because, again, people don't take it seriously because it seems so simple. Yeah. But you really are manipulating brain chemistry and function when you do these breathing techniques. You wouldn't take too many prescription drugs. Right, exactly. Yeah. But you would <laughs> yeah. do like 18 cycles yeah. Yeah. in an hour. Okay, I've got you. Um, uh, and I wanted to just quickly, just after that, you said after three months it can lower heart rate, lower blood pressure. 
And you have talked about um, it's better than prescription anxiety Oh, drugs. there's no comparison there. You know, and and uh, another thing is that when you use it, when people are in states of anxiety, panic states, the subjective experience is being out of control. Mm. If you treat that by giving a drug, you reinforce the illusion that the locus of control is external. When you, if people practice this breathing technique, mm -hmm and discover that they have within them the power to control this, that's just a revelation. Mm -hmm. And the external technique fails with repetition. Mm -hmm. You know, the more frequently you take the drug, the less effective it becomes. Mm -hmm. And very easy to become addicted to it. The breathing technique, the more you repeat it, the more effective it becomes at controlling the anxiety mm -hmm. state. I read a very interesting book. I don't know if you've read Johan Hari's book about uh, antidepressants. And about how I have. Yeah. Now, with antidepressants, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> yeah. You know, the uh, starting about ten years ago, there began to be evidence that antidepressants didn't work so well. Mm. Uh, and first, it was that you know, in cases of mild to moderate depression, you couldn't distinguish them from placebos. And when that started to be published, the people who were very committed to those drugs you know, got very upset and said, well, maybe that's true for mild depression, but it's not true for serious forms of depression. And then there began to be studies showing that even in serious forms of depression, mm -hmm. you couldn't distinguish them from placebos. And the latest is that even in very, very severe depression, you can't distinguish these drugs from placebos. So as this evidence has accumulated, what has the response been? Now, I don't know if this is true in the UK, but in the US, I just was horrified when this began to happen. You know, we, we have in the U.S. direct-to-consumer advertising of pharmaceutical drugs. Mm. You know, you turn on the television program and almost all the commercials are for pharmaceutical drugs. Hor horrendous. But a lot of them now are for antipsychotic drugs. These are drugs that were developed for major medical illness, for schizophrenia, psychosis. They're now being given out as first-line interventions to make anti- When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM antidepressants work better so the ads on television say your antidepressant not working ask your doctor to prescribe you know abilify and this is an antipsychotic drug and these are be giving out they start people off on these on a combination of an antidepressant and an antipsychotic drug because the antidepressant doesn't work so good anymore and this is being done with kids as well i mean i'm just horrified at that practice okay so this is really indicative of where we kind of are where we're overloaded yeah and I guess we're kind of at a bit of a cracking point. It feels like that from where I sit. I agree. Where we have to change the way that we live, but we are in a, an age and a world where it's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. And people believe in medicine. And, you know, in, no, in, in all the specialties of medicine, of all of them, I think psychiatry is the one that's in most trouble. You know, it is most dominated by this materialistic paradigm and the dogma that all disordered mental states are the result of disordered brain biochemistry and that mm -hmm. the only way to deal with that is through taking medication. Mm -hmm. And that's so wrong. Our center has sponsored two national conferences on integrative mental health. Uh, the first one was about eight years ago and uh, 
We had planned to have about 250 people in attendance. We had to close the registration at 800 people because that's all our venue would hold. We could have had twice that many. So wow. we, in April, we had the second one in San Francisco, and the same thing, massive response to this, that the hunger of mental health professionals for another way of doing this. And the program was fabulous. It was about nutritional approaches, mindfulness approaches, mm -hmm. you know, all these novel techniques other than using uh, drugs. It's that approach that I guess in all the press releases I read would be seen as holistic, 360. And it does fall into that territory where sometimes the people saying that aren't qualified. True. Um, but they might be really convincing. Yeah. So if, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I want to take charge of my mental health or my physical health, um, what should, is there anything they could be avoiding or anything they should be drawn to? Well, first of all, one thing, I, a just general piece of advice is that you should never stop taking a prescribed medication suddenly. Mm. Uh, and you should never try to get off a, a, a prescribed medication until you have other steps in place to manage the condition mm. for which it was given. But uh, I, the most recent book that I wrote was called, is called Mind Over Meds, mm. and it's about the problem of overmedication. Mm. And it goes through the categories of drugs that I think are most misused and overused today, uh, antidepressants being one of them, anti-anxieties being another. And it, in each instance, it gives what an integrative doctor would do for this condition mm -hmm. and also gives advice about how to get, wean off of conventional medication and try these other things. Mm -hmm. And the, an integrative treatment plan may include medication, but that would always be in the context of a lifestyle plan, changing diet, changing activity, mm -hmm. practicing some sort of stress reduction and so forth. Okay. So what are the things that people should be drawn to? Is it Make sure that you spend a bit of time in nature. I, all right. I think here the, the key, <laughs> key, yes, that's one of them. But the key things are learn how to eat right. Mm. And I think the basic rule there, you know, I'm not going to get into all the arguments over this and that. But the basic <laughs> rule is to stop eating refined, processed, and manufactured food. Mm. I mean, that's what's doing us in. And to eat foods as close to the way nature produces them as possible. Secondly, I would say is to be physically active throughout life. Mm. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to run marathons or work out with a personal trainer. You want to move your body. You know, mm. walking is a perfectly good activity if you do enough of it. Mm. Uh, you want to get good rest and sleep, which many people do not. Mm. Uh, you want to learn and practice some method to neutralize harmful effects of stress. And for my money, the 478 breath is the most time and mm -hmm. cost efficient. Uh, I think uh, you want to pay attention to mental nutrition, to what you let in your mind. Mm. I've often long recommended that people uh, practice news fasts. Uh, see if you can, like, one day a week not pay any attention mm -hmm. to news and work up to seven days a week. And I think that's especially important in these days. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, there is a very real phenomenon of nature deficit disorder, especially in kids. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yes, spending time in nature is extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I, bring, I want to pick on two of those particular things. One of them is diet and yeah. food because I want to talk about you actually opened a restaurant. Yes. And were you responsible for a kale shortage on the West? Yes. Organic kale yes, shortage. Yes, exactly. Because you produce such a beautiful, such a delicious kale salad. Kale salad, right. But then also you were ahead of the curve as well with that because no one, because that was at a time when people said um, 
fresh food, that kind of food won't sell right. <laughs> before. Yeah. And uh, you were also the, one of the first people to say uh, anti-inflammatory diet. Yeah. So let me tell you about the restaurants first. Mm. Uh, it's called True Food Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And uh, the history of this is that you know, I'm a very good home cook. I'm not a chef. Uh, but over the years, many people who ate my food would say you ought to open a restaurant. Uh, I was never tempted to do that because I knew nothing about the restaurant business and it looked like a very tough business. It's a very tough business. <laughs> but about 12 years ago, a mutual friend introduced me to a very successful restaurateur in Arizona. And I proposed to him the concept of a restaurant that would serve really delicious food that happened to conform to good nutritional principles. Mm-hmm. He didn't get it. He said, health food doesn't sell. Uh, I think he thought I meant tofu and sprouts. Mm-hmm. Um, I eventually cooked for him and his wife. He liked the food. And I could see his wheels <laughs> turning. And he said he was willing to give it a try, but he was extremely doubtful that it would succeed. And we opened the first true food kitchen in Phoenix. Uh, I think it's 11 years ago now. It was right as the economy tanked. And everybody said, you know, we were crazy. But from the moment it opened its doors, it was extremely successful. Mm. Uh, There were a lot of, you know, compromises that we made. He wanted, um, I didn't want meat on the menu. He said, you have to have some meat on the menu. He finally had, we had a steak taco dish, which turned out to be one of the popular Mm. things. But he wanted artificial sweeteners. I said, no. He wanted soda. I said, no. Anyway, uh, we now have, we've just opened the, gee, I think we've got 40 of these now throughout the U.S. They're all ex- doing extremely well. I bet. I hope we'll have one <laughs> in London soon. <laughs> you know, there's, there's great interest in having these internationally. Mm. And I think the, uh, the secret of this, all the... Sorry, um, yeah. listeners, you, may have, you might have noticed yes. that the Metropolitan Police are out. Yes. You know, all the food is prepared from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful to the eye. Mm-hmm. It's delicious. And we don't rub people's faces in the fact that it's healthy food, but mm-hmm. people feel good when they eat there. So, and I supply a lot of the recipes. I look for novel ingredients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's based on my philosophy of an anti-inflammatory diet, mm-hmm. which I developed. Mm-hmm. So I, this goes back probably 20, 25 years, I began to see information in the scientific literature about inflammation being the root cause of chronic, serious chronic diseases, uh, all the diseases of aging, coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's disease, um, cancer, that all of these seems linked in, in purposeless, low-level chronic inflammation. And one might not, and you don't necessarily know that you're inflamed, right? No, this is imperceptible yeah. inflammation. You know it on the surface of your body. You know if you're if you're injured mm-hmm. uh, or have an infection, there's local red heatness, mm-hmm. swelling, and pain. That's inflammation. Mm-hmm. But this can go on throughout the body at a very low level, and mm-hmm. it looks like if it persists, uh, this leads to these very serious chronic diseases. So it seemed to me that your best strategy for overall health is to contain inappropriate inflammation Mm. and there are many influences on inflammatory status Mm. Uh, there are environmental toxins that increase inflammation stress increases inflammation but diet has a huge role and we have Mm. potential control over that so i looked at the mediterranean diet as a template Mm -hmm. because we have enormous scientific evidence for the mediterranean diet being associated with good general health and longevity Mm -hmm. And I tweaked that by adding Asian influences to it from my experiences of, mm. you know, my time in Asia. So I added spices like ginger and turmeric and uh, green tea and matcha and um, 
mushrooms, Asian mushrooms. So came up with this anti-inflammatory diet. It's not a, uh, you know, it's not difficult to follow. It doesn't deny pleasure from food. Uh, and that's the basis of the food served in True Food Kitchen. And, you, and there's a book about the anti-inflammatory diet. Yes, that's on all of my, in my website, drweil.com, and all of my recent books, you can find the details of that. And obviously they'll be in the show notes. But I do want to ask you about supplementation. Yes. So I was at a health spa yesterday. Yes. Doing a little bit of investigative work. <laughs> and I walked past the IV drip room. Oh, my God. And I said, I really disagree. And obviously I make myself really popular when I do this. Yeah. <laughs> you probably know what that's like. <laughs> when I said, I don't really think I should be given an IV drip until you know what my current levels are. I should be tested first. And then if there is a deficiency then maybe there is scope for... Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Moreover, I think there's no reason to give anything IV, Mm. uh, you know, when you can give these orally as well. Mm. And I would not let anyone give me an IV infusion of something unless there was a really good reason to do that. So that seems crazy to me. Uh, But it is that kind of thing of, oh, I'm feeling a bit sluggish this week. I'm going to go and get my vitamin B infusion. Well, there's your placebo effect at work. You know, one Mm. of the classic uh, placebos has been uh, injections of vitamin B12. Uh, you know, that's, that's over the years, that's classic for, you know, actors, singers, performers, sports people, you know, mm. get a shot of B12 and you feel terrific. In the ass. Yeah. <laughs> but the first one, it's the first one always has the greatest effect. Right. And then subsequently fade and that's classic uh, placebo. Um, mm. Yeah. Interesting. At any rate, there, I, sub, supplements are not substitutes for the whole foods that contain them. Mm. Because at best, they're partial representations of the complexes of compounds that nature produces. Uh, and I don't think taking supplements excuses you from eating a good diet. Mm-hmm. But I think supplements can be useful as insurance against gaps in the diet. Um, I'm a very careful shopper. I cook for myself. I have a garden. I grow a lot of my own food. Mm-hmm. And I take a daily multi, multi-nutrient supplement because uh, for one reason or another, such as when I flew here, I don't eat the... Uh, the fruits and vegetables that I should every day. And Mm. we need these micronutrients every day in the right amounts. So I think supplements can be useful as insurance against gaps in the diet. And some of them in higher doses than you can get from foods have specific uh, therapeutic or preventive effects like vitamin D, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, so, and it's very, it's useful to know about them. Mm. It might not seem like it today because it's a very beautiful, bright, sunny day in London. Yes. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of vitamin D deficiency. Sure. But, you know, interestingly, there's also a lot of vitamin D deficiency in Saudi Arabia. And that's because people are either all covered up or they're in air-conditioned buildings all day. Mm. And there's a great deal of vitamin D deficiency in Arizona where I live because dermatologists have made people so paranoid about the sun that everybody is slathered with sunscreen. And mm. so they don't get vitamin D either so they're suffocating or um, blocking their vitamin d receptors interesting so if someone is sitting listening to this and they're thinking i've got a cupboard full of supplements (laughs) what should i do is it a case of maybe just taking that step back looking at what you're actually getting in your diet you know i when um at our clinic at the university of arizona when I don't actively see patients anymore, but uh, when I did, and all the people that I work with do the same, we would ask people to bring in everything that they're taking. Mm. Some people would come in with two shopping bags full of <laughs> supplements, you know, and dump them out, and you say, why are you taking this? Well, my neighbor takes it, and, you know, she says, blah, blah, blah. Why are you taking this? Well, I heard on the radio. Why are you taking this? I don't, I don't really remember. Mm. And, you know, a lot of these are duplicative. A lot of them are unnecessary, and that the, one of the first things we do is just weed 
all this stuff out. Now, one of the things I do, and this is inspired by my brother, is if ever I start to feel even the slightest bit un- unwell, I will grate fresh garlic. Oh, that's my, <laughs> that's my go-to as well. It's quite antisocial. Yes, but it works. <laughs> I do it at the first sign. You know, garlic is a very powerful antibiotic. Mm. And uh, the compound in it that's responsible for that is called allicin. And allicin is not present in an uncrushed garlic clove. It forms when garlic is crushed up and is exposed to air. And many people don't know this. So if you want the health benefits of garlic, you should mash garlic and let it sit for 10 minutes before you use it. If you do, then you can add it, you can cook with it and so forth, and you get the allicin. So that's a good little tip that most people don't know. But you're doing that if you're grading it. Sorry, listeners. I've just given Dr. Wild my most surprised, like, (laughs) oh, my God, face. Um, Okay. Can I ask you how you might feel about um, crushing garlic with some chili? This is to if you get a cold and a shot of vodka. And nicking it. That sounds fine, and then I would go to bed, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think garlic is terrific, and, and uh, really good. It's, it's very useful at the first sign of a, you know, a respiratory infection. Because it's um, an- anti... It's antibacterial. Antibacterial. And, and antiviral, and mm. uh, does a lot of good things for you. And so better to do that than to take... A, a supplement Actually, I don't think any of, the, any of the over-the-counter cold remedies mm-hmm. do anything. Oh. I think they're worthless and, 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 and actually may be counterproductive in that they make people think that they're doing something and then they go about their business when mm. they should be resting and not exposing other people. <laughs> right. Okay. We're going to move on to something else that could be a whole episode, yeah. but you've already kind of done an episode with Tim Ferriss about this, but I do want to reference it for my listeners because the um, experimentation and use of psychedelics, yeah. psychotropics has, beca- has become fashionable. I'm getting... Very, yeah these press releases about it and I know of people who are saying oh come to my house and such and such and I've got this shaman who's going to come along and keep his company while we do ayahuasca and I find that really worrying yeah the main advice I would give to people is be very careful about who you do it with Mm. you know and you really want to check the credentials of these people who are guiding Mm. sessions because there there are real applications of using these drugs and, it, and the ones that I've listened to, for example, I know the ones that Tim Ferriss yeah. is funding are the ones that are actually helping with things like PTSD, yeah. which yeah. is incredible. But using it as like a hobbyist, or oh, this weekend I'm going to open my mind. Well, I think, you know, physically these drugs are quite safe, probably safer than any of the drugs we use in medicine. But the, there are real psychological risks to them. Mm. And those are containable by attending to set and setting, you know, but that's the skill of the the guide in arranging mm. circumstances to increase the chance of a positive experience. So there are, you know, I get an awful lot of inquiries from people of where can I, you know, find somebody to guide me in a psychedelic experience. And I, it's, I, I don't always know how to, what to tell people about mm. that. Yeah. But there is now, there are, you know, one of the groups that's been very successful, you know, about MAPS in the U.S., it's the multi multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, a nonprofit group. The founder of that, Rick Doblin, almost single-handedly has been responsible for getting uh, MDMA to where it is today, where it's about to be legalized for treatment of PTSD. He's raised a lot of money for psychedelic research, and I understand. And the the website of that is maps.org. And I understand that they are beginning a training program for psychedelic guides. Mm. Uh, there's another. There's a school in. Um, California called the California Institute of Integral Studies 
that also has a program, training program for psychedelic guides. So, uh, you know, maybe we will begin to see, yeah. you know, some people who are really well trained in how to do this. It's the, it, as you said at the top, it's the future. Yeah. Um, just to that point, though, I think where I have a concern, and I hope I'm not pressing you on this, is if someone thinks they've got a trauma to work through, or if someone thinks I'm feeling depressed, this is going to be the answer. My concern always is, well, you don't know what you're opening up. Yeah, it might be. Right. <laughs> but I think you'd really want the advice of a mental health professional. Okay. But the problem is that most mental health professionals are not trained in this area. So again, there's a, you know, we need people who really bridge both worlds. Right. Okay. I've got you. Um, that's really interesting. Okay. So it's become fashionable, but let's just be very careful right. about how we move forward with it. Um, now, I do want to talk about your original trials about marijuana. Just because yeah. they, <laughs> I love the fact that one of the things that you debunked is the fact that it doesn't dilate your pupils, right. it doesn't give you the munchies. <laughs> well, the reason this is back in 1968. First of all, it was the first time anybody had given human beings uh, marijuana in a in a controlled double blind setting. Mm. Never been done, and I was just interested in getting some very basic information. The reason we wanted to check the pupil thing is that uh, that the cops were arresting people based on seeing dilated pupils and mm -hmm. saying that was probable cause for searching for marijuana. So it turned out that it didn't do that. <laughs> and in terms of the munchies, you know, people said that it lowered blood sugar, and that was why people got hungry. Well, it turned out to have no effect on blood sugar. Mm -hmm. um, and there's probably other reasons why people get the munchies. Yeah. Uh, at, at any rate, uh, it was just very basic stuff. But uh, what, what one thing we did show that was interesting was that uh, people who'd never had cannabis before in our laboratory setting, uh, when they were under the influence of, you could m show that their performance on simple psychomotor tests was impaired. Mm -hmm. But if you took people who were experienced users and gave them the doses they were familiar with, you couldn't show any changes in, in performance. So I think that's quite interesting. And it's very different from alcohol, which if you know at a certain level is going to impair everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, and yet it's a, legal recreational right drug right would the world be a better place if that was made illegal and marijuana was made legal? i'm have no doubt tobacco as well you oh, know that yeah. these are it's interesting that the drugs that we've made legal are the ones that are really the most dangerous do you think that will ever change well i don't know that they're going to become illegal but certainly uh, marijuana is is about to become you know legalized in the u.s it's only a matter of time before the federal government has to legalize it from your perspective because health has become very fashionable, what are the traps that you see people falling into that you would just wish you could just caution them against? Uh, you know, I think that it's so hard to navigate through all of the conflicting stuff out there. I think one of the most troublesome movements that I see, I don't know if this has happened here, is the anti-vax movement. Oh, yes, it is. I mean, that's really scary to me. And it's, it's I, you know, I, I acknowledge people's fears about these procedures, and I think our immunizations aren't perfect, but the idea of immunization is a very sound idea. Mm. And if people lived with the diseases that these prevent, I don't think anybody would be questioning them. Mm. Uh, you know, I've been in, in other parts of the world where you still see polio and tetanus, and if people had those diseases in front of them, nobody would be questioning this. I think that's a very dangerous you know, movement out there. And the more people that don't vaccinate, the more these diseases are going to reappear. Well, 
and I'm not 100% sure of my facts here, but along the lines of social media has been really policed, particularly over here, in the spreading of anti-vax. Oh, good. Um, memes, because it's memes that are making yeah, yeah, people yeah. make decisions. Yeah. Um, and I had Dr. Jen Gunter on the podcast recently. I yeah. don't know if you uh, cross paths with her. But one of the things I said to her, because there's a lot of uh, nonsense out there about female health, women's yeah. health, and uh, particular websites selling eggs to put yeah. in places that they shouldn't be. And <laughs> one, one of the uh, things I said to her was, well, how do we apply critical thinking when we are bombarded with memes, clickbait, yeah, yeah, health yeah. Uh, yeah. articles? And I wonder if you have ha any advice for anyone just to sort of rise above it and not get sucked in. Well, uh, you know, I think you want to seek out reputable sources of information. So, you know, I recommend my website, <laughs> my books. Yeah. Uh, 15 of them, my yeah, friend. Doctors that I've trained. You know, yeah. that's exactly what they're there for. Mm. Um, you know, that's all I can tell you. Another movement that I, that I find scary is the whole biohacker movement. You know, that some of these people, they're doing things that I think are just crazy. You know, putting putting substances into their body which are not well studied, which we really don't know about long term safety of. Um, I, I, that's a lot of craziness out there. Okay, so biohacking is something that I did a, a mini podcast yeah. on about a year ago. Yeah. And I said, well, this is what it is, and to some extent, I can see some value. Yeah, some, in some of it, of the right? Of course. But biohacking to me is waking up feeling a bit tired and having a coffee. <laughs> Right? Yeah, That's yeah, still a yeah, form that, of biohacking. True. Um, That's an innocuous form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then it is going to the, it is going to extreme lengths. What was the substance you were thinking of that people are putting in their body? Uh, well, there's a, there's a drug called rapamycin. Have you heard of that one? Uh, this has been, it's used as an immunosuppressant drug for organ transplantation. But it has, it's, it appears to increase longevity and healthy aging there's some research in dogs but on the basis of very limited data some of these biohackers are taking that themselves and i think you know we have no really information about long-term safety of that i also read because i was prescribed metformin for a long time yeah and then i read that people in uh san francisco like yeah. The, yeah. the rich types were taking it to extend extend life that's a very common practice now is that a legit thing does it work well i don't think we know i right. mean there's 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 suggestive evidence at least metformin is a relatively benign drug so i don't think you know unlike rapamycin which mm. has the potential to increase risks of cancer uh but i think you know it's it's on the basis of limited data that people are doing these things mm. But you've had limited data before, but you've seen. But the I'm picture. pretty good. I'm pretty good at no extrapolating yeah. and knowing where things are going to go. Uh, but some of this stuff just makes me nervous. It makes me very nervous yeah. too. Although I do, I do take a little bit of apple cider vinegar and water before but bed. Can't hurt you. And Jen Gunter was like, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, let's also just quickly talk about your books because you've written fifteen. Yeah. And you started off with A Healthy Mind. Natural Mind. Natural Mind. Right. Still in print, still very useful to people. That was really about drugs and altered states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it argued that there really weren't, weren't good or bad drugs. There were good or bad uses of them and that our drug policies were silly. It talked mm -hmm. about cannabis and, and uh, psychedelics. And what's the most recent book? The most recent book is this Mind Over Meds, which is about overmedication. And if someone's listening to this and they think, I really want to 
find out a bit more. Is there any place that you would advise they go in? Maybe well, start? I would say my first uh, book about my philosophy of health is called uh, "It Was Spontaneous Healing." Mm. I look at that. It really talks. It's about the body's intrinsic healing mechanisms mm -hmm. and, and the philosophy of integrative medicine. Yeah, and also the one called "Healthy Aging," which is I think has a lot of useful information in it. Okay, and then also one of my favorite quotes of yours is this. I've gotten away with saying the most outrageous things because I'm not angry. <laughs> and I feel that one, I mean, if you go on social media, yeah. people are angry. Yeah. Opinionated plus anger yeah. equals social media. No. Um, what are your tips for not getting angry? Well, I've practiced my breathing exercise, for example. But, you know, I've had a lot of experience at being on... I mean, in the oh, 70s, 80s, even with the natural mind, I mean, that was pretty radical stuff in those days. And I would be lured onto television programs and they would ambush me and have somebody that was completely hated what I was writing and hadn't told me that that was going to be on with them, right. you know, stuff like that. So in situations with that, I developed a lot of practice at keeping myself calm and centered. Mm -hmm. And I really learned, you know, I just observed that I see people talk to audiences and they provoke a really strong reaction. They think people are reacting to the content of what they're saying and it's not. It's people reacting to the emotional tone mm. with which they're saying things. And if you speak with a non-angry tone, you can say pretty outrageous things and people will listen mm. you know, and pay attention to them. But it also keeps you Yes, it's much better for mind. you. But it's easy, but again, uh, we're animals, aren't we? So if yeah. someone's up there, and I'm thinking Tony Robbins, just because he's got that yeah, way yeah, of yeah. speaking where you're like, I'm listening to everything you say, right, Tony. Right, right. Um, it's very captivating. Yeah. So it's kind of, if you're centered, you're probably not going to get pulled into it. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So just stay, don't, don't get angry. If it, to the extent <laughs> that you can do that, that's very helpful. And also without being um, sort of twee about it, it if you're not angry, uh, inflammation, like all of these Absolutely. things are actually There's linked. no question. I mean, inflammation is in a way, it's an angry state, right? It's mm. hot and red. And, mm. uh, but, you know, the, the important thing to note about inflammation, inflammation is the cornerstone of the body's healing response. It's how the body gets more nourishment and more immune activity to an area that needs it. Mm. If you can't produce enough inflammation, you're vulnerable to infection. Mm -hmm. If you produce too much inflammation, you're vulnerable to allergies and autoimmunity and over time to all these very serious you know, chronic diseases. So there's a very delicate balance there uh, of being able to produce enough inflammation and not too much. Well, to that end, I will be putting all the links to Dr. Andrew Good. Weil in the show notes and all of your books. And I will be uh, immediately cooking something from the uh, anti-inflammatory diet. Thank you so much for your time. It's yes, I enjoyed it. To speak to you. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Andrew Weil and I. If you would like to talk to me, then email me, thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or DM me on social media where I'm at Emma Guns on Twitter and Instagram. I do try to get back to every single message I receive. If you would like to talk to me and thousands of other listeners to this podcast, then I suggest you... Well, why don't you click that link in the show notes and join the Facebook forum? There are thousands of other listeners to this podcast in there having numerous conversations, starting various threads. It really is a fun, interesting and just absolutely brilliant place to be it's one of my favorite ways to spend time is by spending time in that facebook group with you my most excellent listeners thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.